Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Drew, grab your Bibles, go and grab them and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 is where we're going to begin this morning. You can use your device, they'll be up on the screen as well. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. As a church, we're taking this year, and we're studying through one book of the Bible, and that book of the Bible is the book of Exodus, made famous by one Charlton Heston. So this morning, uh, we're gonna get there eventually, but I wanna frame it in such a way um, that gives us a deeper understanding of what's happening in in this book. So on the screen will come up just a list of the scriptures I'm gonna use this morning. I want you to see this is not something that we've made up. I haven't changed words on the screen for you. And so you can uh, write these chapters and verses down if you want to. You can research them later. Just so you see that none of this is made up. This is all right here from the word of God in a way that I hope uh, drives you to a deeper faith and understanding. So I'm gonna use a few of those passages here this morning. So I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if there are film clips in your head. I don't know if there are pictures uh, in your mind of what that might've looked like, how that would have been described to a people. Uh, If you've grown up in church, the resurrection of Jesus looks a lot like pastel colors to a lot of us and seersucker suits. That's what what the resurrection of Jesus reminds us, looks like for us. Uh, But there are pictures we have in our minds of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus. And for many of us, this is the picture that we have in our minds of Jesus. Is that the picture you have of Jesus? How many of you have that or had that hanging on your wall in your house growing up or even now? Some of you? Yeah. Or now. Maybe now you have it. This, this is the Jesus we picture. This is a painting by a guy named Warner Salmon. It's called The Head of Christ. I think because it's the head of Christ. And so that's what he called it. This was painted in 1941. It has become the most widely distributed an image of Jesus in the history of the world, just since 41. Now, I think that includes everything like coffee mugs and calendars and that kind of stuff too, but this is everywhere. I mean, over 500 million copies, prints of this painting have been distributed worldwide. And so for many of us, this is the Jesus. We, when we think of a resurrected Jesus, we think of this Norwegian Jesus, don't we? The flowing locks of hair, I mean, the piercing eyes, this is the same look our 12-year-old gives us when we're talking to him. Okay, is, is something happening in there? Are you paying attention to any of this that I'm saying to you? So this is the image that we have of Jesus. I am particularly fond of the receding hairline. I, I, I like that. that. That helps me. I feel good about that. Some of you enjoy the mullet. That helps a lot of you. You like, we're in Ola. It's fine. But this is the Jesus, right? We have an image of Jesus. Now, what should stand out is that he is very, he's a very white Jesus. But based on our image of Jesus, it actually informs then how we read scripture. It informs how we think about the church, how we think about people, how we think about the resurrection, how we think about his second coming if we go that far. The picture we have in our minds of Jesus informs a lot. Well, back in 2002, a group of British New Testament scholars teamed up with some forensic scientists and they went to the Middle East and they traveled through Jerusalem and into Judea and and they asked permission to dig up the bones and skeletons of bodies who would have been killed or died around the same time, 33 to 35 AD. 
And what they did was, because you can do this in forensic science, is they reconstructed what maybe a typical Galilean male would have looked like. Then they rendered it and they got an idea of what an average Jewish man from the first century would have looked like. And this is what he would have looked like. Anybody have that on your wall? No one? <laughs> now, out of any Jesus movies you've seen, Jesus is always the tallest one of the disciples, isn't he? Like he's always the one that just, he's above the rest of them. We would learn and believe then, based on evidence, on facts, that Jesus was probably 5'6 to 5'7". And there's some of you men who are like, amen, yes, yes. I've been trying to tell my wife that for years. This is better, this is better. So this probably is the more accurate depiction of who Jesus is. And even just looking at the two images, you get a different idea of Christianity, don't you? Just based on the image of Jesus. What he must have been like, what the following must have been like. Women weren't flocking to him because of his hair. I mean, look. They were following Jesus because of who he said that he was and what he was doing in the world at that time. And just to help you, here's another image of Jesus. The image we have of Jesus changes everything we believe about what it is to follow him and what this Bible actually says about him. And here's what I know about us as a culture and particularly as a community in the South. We picture a really polite, yes ma'am, yes sir, no ma'am, no sir, Jesus. We picture a good looking Jesus and therefore we try to be a good looking Christian. But I wonder how many of us have the wrong picture of Jesus in our minds. What if this is more accurately who he was? What if this is our Messiah? Well, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has been executed on a Roman cross. Stakes, nails driven into his wrists and his feet, crown of thorns placed on his head, a spear thrust into his side. And he's hung between two thieves and he gives his life. And many of his followers then believe, well, that must have been the end. They had different hopes for him than what he had accomplished. But what we know in scripture is that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And there are women, two women run to the tomb to try to anoint the body with spices. The day before it would have been Sabbath. They couldn't work on the Sabbath. They want to anoint the body and it's gone. So all this has happened. Word is slowly getting out to different followers of Jesus and they don't know how to handle what's happened. And that's where we pick up here in Luke 24. Luke tells us that the very day, that very day, that first Easter resurrection Sunday, two of them, two of his followers, not of the 12 disciples, but followers, hundreds of them, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're walking with Jesus, a seven mile journey with Jesus. And we read their eyes were kept from him recognizing him. This word in, in the Greek, the New Testament's written in Greek. This word in the Greek for recognize is the idea to know somebody fully, almost immediately, but based on experience. It's that moment when suddenly your eyes are open to who a person actually is. What's happening here is that these men watch the whole thing go down were followers of Jesus. 
are spending seven miles with him and they don't recognize him. They can't put all the pieces together. They are, they're Jesus adjacent, but they don't have relationship with him. They can't tell who he is. Now, the significant truth here is that many of us have been walking next to Jesus for seven years, seven miles, 30 years. But I wonder if the picture of who he is is actually a true picture of who he is. You think about these men and you think about Judas, who walked with Jesus for three and a half years and yet maybe never fully recognized him until the end. So they're walking this road to Emmaus and then verse 17, Jesus says to them, well, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Apparently he spoke very polite English. And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas, which is probably why he was sad, That was not in my notes, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Answered him, and Cleopas says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Are you, are you the only person in Jerusalem who has no idea what just happened? And Jesus says, that I love it, what things? And they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now look at how they describe Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, so a man from Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. You haven't heard in verse 20 how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now look at verse 21. Based on their picture of who they thought Jesus was, they had hopes based on that picture. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Circle that word, underline that word redeem. We hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Now, this word redeem is interesting. The first time in the Bible that we read the word redeem is back in Exodus chapter six, where God tells Moses, I'm gonna send you into Egypt and I'm going to redeem my people. I'm gonna call them out with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment is what God tells Moses. I will redeem. That's what he says to redeem. So what happened then as, as God redeems his people through the 10 plagues and delivers them through the Red Sea and into the promised land, what happened for a typical Jewish person like Cleopas is they built a paradigm around the word, word redeem. To redeem somebody meant that you overthrow whatever evil power is in place at the time. To redeem Israel meant he had to overthrow the evil of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, the superpower, the evil in control is Rome. And Jesus has not overthrown Rome. In fact, Rome seems to have overthrown Jesus. So because of their picture of Jesus, they had a picture of what redemption looked like. And they're saying, so we had hoped, we used to hope that he was the one who would redeem us. But it seems now it's not him because he's been dead for like three days. Verse 22 Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. And don't they, men? Don't women amaze us? They were at the tomb early in the morning, verse 23. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Then verse 24, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
They're saying, so we've heard some stuff, but I still haven't seen him, haven't seen the body, haven't seen this Jesus. Verse 25, and Jesus says to them, oh, foolish ones of, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that word means anointed one or Messiah, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses, we meet Moses in Exodus. 1,500 years before all of this is where Moses was. So Jesus, unrecognizable to the men, says, hey, don't you remember Jesus even, this came all the way back from Moses and all the prophets. And Jesus interpreted to these men all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus walked through the entire Old Testament and said, that was about Jesus, that was about Jesus, that was about Jesus. Verse 28, they draw near to the village in which they were going and Jesus acted as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And while he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, those of us who are readers of the Bible, we understand something happened here. We know other times when Jesus blessed bread and broke bread and gave it to them, but they haven't seen all this. Verse 31, but now their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They immediately had an experience, an encounter where they knew him for who he was. And then he vanished from their sight. And maybe you feel that way about Jesus. Right when you got close, he was gone. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? In retrospect, they're saying 2020 vision. In retrospect, I, I think I did feel something different with this man talking to us. And when he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And when they told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So that phrase, the breaking of the bread, is interesting because it should take us back to a few things. So here are a few cultural things to understand of what's happening in Jerusalem at this time. This is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread at this time, the Passover. It's a seven-day festival where people, the Jews, would come from wherever they were and they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate an event that happened 1,500 years prior in Egypt. And they would gather there and they would eat. And for those seven days, there would be no leavened bread. So no, no yeast rolls in their house at all, nothing. No bread, just everything was unleavened. So essentially it was a cracker. So when we read here that Jesus broke the bread, he's not, he's not tearing uh, pieces off of Miss Schubert's rolls. He's not doing that. Jesus is breaking the unleavened bread. And for a Jew, that really only happened this time of year. So he was known of them in this breaking of bread. So what we need to do now is we gotta put some context around what's happening. So now turn to Exodus chapter 12. It'll be on the screen for you if you prefer that, but I would suggest you look at it in your own Bible, in your lap. Exodus chapter 12, here's what's happened for us. And we've been studying Exodus. So God's people, the Israelites, are in slavery in Egypt. They're ruled by the Egyptians, particularly the Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians. And they've been there now for 430 years. They, they got there on good terms, but as they grew, as they increased and multiplied, they became a threat to the Egyptian government. 
And the Egyptian pharaoh at the time said, no more of this. We're gonna uh, put a rule in place that all male children, firstborn male children must be killed. Throw them in the Nile. We can't do this anymore. There was one little boy who was born to um, God-fearing mother and father, and his name was Moses. He was placed in a basket and floated down the Nile River. And the Pharaoh's daughter just happened to be there at the time, heard a Hebrew baby crying in the bulrushes and the reeds. She picked him up and it's like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with this baby. Well, Moses' little sister, Miriam, was there. And Miriam was like, I know what you can do with that baby. I'll go find his mama. And so Pharaoh's daughter says, sure, little three-year-old, I will trust you. And so she goes and gets Moses' mom and Moses' mom comes and says, oh, what do you know, a Hebrew baby? I'll nurse him for you. And so she does and she gets paid for it. Any mamas want some of that? Well, she gets paid for it and he then ends up growing and he moves into Pharaoh's palace. He rises in power and at the age of 40, he has his own recognition where he recognizes he's not an Egyptian, he's a Hebrew. And he sees his own people being beaten because of their work or lack thereof. So he goes out to make things better. And by making things better, he murders an Egyptian slave master and he buries him in the sand the next day, he goes out to find that his own people, the Hebrews, are like, you're gonna kill me too? He's like, what? That, that, no, what? And so then he runs into the wilderness. And from the age of 40 to 80, Moses is in the wilderness, working for his father-in-law on the backside of a mountain, tending his father-in-law's sheep. At the age of 80, God speaks to him through a burning bush on the side of a mountain. And he says, I have called you. I need you to go set my people free from slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, listen, there's plenty of other people. I've got all these issues and God's like, I don't think I asked for your opinion. I just have told you what I want you to do. And Moses asked him, okay, fine. But if I go to Egypt where all these gods are, all these Egyptian gods, they're gonna ask me what God has sent me. What is your name? And God says, my name is Yahweh, which means I am that I am. I be what I be. Moses is like, well, that clears things up. Okay. And so Moses runs into Egypt, has his own issues, but... Ultimately, at the pinnacle of their slavery, God sends 10 plagues or divine acts of judgment upon the Egyptians, dealing with their Egyptian false gods. And he does the first six, and then seven, eight, and nine were directed at Pharaoh himself. He's going after Pharaoh's heart. And then God says, I've got one more. This is the big one. I'm gonna send an angel of death. And the angel of death is going to come and take the firstborn of the children or the men or the livestock. Whoever does not do what I tell them to do, I will take them from them. So let's look at this in Exodus chapter 12. This is the beginning of that 10th and final mighty act of judgment. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' older brother, in the land of Egypt, this month, this, this month will be for you a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. What God is doing is he's reorienting the Jewish calendar. And he's saying this moment, this moment right now will shape the rest of your history. So much so that you need to change the way you think about your calendar based on this act. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat and you shall make uh, your count for the lamb. In other words, we're not, we're not meal prepping. This is for one night. Grab enough lamb for one meal. But look at verse five. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. 
spotless without blemish, no broken bones, no spots, no defects. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. You shall keep it for four days. And on this fifth day, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Happy Easter. Verse seven, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, that's the top of the houses in which, of the doorframe, of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So God gives Moses, there's three things that have to happen in this meal. Fire roasted lamb, unleavened bread and bitter herbs and you are to eat it that night. And then he tells them how to prepare it. Verse nine, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner part. Roast the whole lamb. I want you to see what's happening. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains in the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. This is not a sit-down meal, this is fast food. What he tells the Israelites is, I want you to eat this with haste. I want you to eat this prepared to act. So have everything packed. Some translations say to have your loins girded, which means be ready for action, ready to run. Be ready. So you're gonna eat it that night. And during that night, something is going to happen. He calls it the Lord's Passover, verse, 20, or verse 12. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the one true God. But the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Then down into verse 24, so you can see the significance of it. He says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service or why are we doing this? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So 1,500 years before Jesus is crucified and then risen from the dead, uh, God puts in place something called the Passover meal. And it should take all the Jews back to this moment when God delivered his people through the shedding of the blood of a lamb. And they are to eat this every year. Every year they are to eat this meal. So he puts this in place as a practice, a rite, a ritual to be observed. Well, that night God does what he says he will do. He comes through with the angel of death and with any house that does not have the blood of the lamb on it, Israel or Egyptian. The firstborn is killed. There are cries and screams throughout all of Egypt such as has been never been heard before. 
And Pharaoh in the middle of the night after losing his firstborn son summons Moses and Aaron and says, get out of my country. I've had enough, go. Take all of your livestock, take everything and get out of here. And that's how God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. But this meal would continue. Every year it would continue. For 1,500 years, 1,500 meals, all the way up until the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, what we need to know about Jesus is Jesus was a Jewish man, raised by a Jewish mom and a Jewish dad with Jewish grandparents. So Jesus, at the time of his death, was probably 33 years old, had had, what, 33 of these Passover meals? He had experienced this very meal that many times. His disciples were Jewish men, for the most part, who had followed this custom as well for all of their lives. They knew what the Passover represented. And so this seminal moment of the Israelites was meant to carry them forward to someone else that was to come. And that's why God was so dogmatic. You do this every year, every year, every year. And make sure you tell your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, tell everyone why we do this. You cannot forget that I'm the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt. He makes this declaration to them. I read this quote this past week from a guy named Mitch Glazer. He was a Messianic Jew. He said, it is as if God sketched the book of Exodus in black and white and painted the gospel of Luke in brilliant color. So in Exodus, God gives the framework. And in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God gives the color to the picture. So let's turn uh, back to Luke chapter 22. When Jesus arrives on the scene, for the first time and he makes his, his public, I guess, announcement and he is baptized. There's a man named John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And as John sees Jesus coming in John chapter one, verse 29, says that John sees Jesus and says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist recognized Jesus before anyone else did. And he calls him the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Well, 33 uh, years of age, Jesus now makes his way into Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just like Jews had done for 1,500 years. And they make their journey there. And Jesus himself, as a Jewish man, makes his journey there, brings his disciples with them. And they come in on a Sunday, we, we believe, and we call it Palm Sunday. They're screaming out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, there would have been what's called a selection day of the lamb where they had to select this blameless, spotless, unblemished lamb, what would have been called selection day. A number of scholars would say Palm Sunday was Jesus' selection day, where the people said, he's the one. He's the lamb we want. Monday and Tuesday, he is attacked. Um, well, he, he first attacks in the temple, flips over tables. And then the religious authorities then begin to prosecute or interrogate Jesus because after selection day for the lamb would have been the inspection day of the lamb to find out if he was spotless and blameless. Did he have any defects to him? Well, the religious leaders, unbeknownst to them, are performing their own inspection days with Jesus. The week continues, and it gets close to what would have been now the Passover meal to begin this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here's where we pick up in Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, two of his core disciples, and he said, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, well, where will you have us prepare it? They're not in their hometown, they're in Jerusalem. We, we can't find a kitchen, what, where, how are we doing this? Verse 10, Jesus said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. I don't think that's a great rule of practice for all of us, just to follow random water boys into their homes. But I, I think for Jesus, this was different. Now, why they could identify him was because women would have been the one carrying the jars of water at the time, not a man. So find a man carrying a jar of water. Verse 11, when you get there, tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. Peter and John went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus had prepared something beforehand. He had prepared a place for them. He knew that this Passover would be like any, unlike any other of the 1,500 Passovers that had happened so far. This is going to be a different week. So he sends them ahead. They find a home where everything is ready for them. They prepared it. Then verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table. They would have laid on their sides to eat this, table, this uh, meal. And the apostles were with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What's interesting is that this would have been at least 24 hours before most of Israel would have celebrated the Passover. They still needed to kill the Passover lamb and they still had to prepare the food. But Jesus is doing this at least a day, maybe a day and a half early. And we read here, he earnestly desires, he's ready for this. But he also knows there's more coming. We have to do this quickly. We have to eat it with haste. So Jesus is already shifting some of what the disciples would have thought about the Passover meal that they'd experienced all of their lives. This is not how we normally do it, he would have said. He would say something like, well, that's not how my church back home does it. I'm just saying, this is what Jesus would say. Verse 16, Jesus says, well, I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then verse 17, watch this happen. All Jewish Passovers would have begun with the blessing of a meal over a blessing of wine. Verse 17, he took a cup and we had given thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. So Jesus, like every typical Passover meal, would have taken the first cup of wine. There would have been four of them. And he would have taken the cup and chalice, he would have lifted it in the air. The disciples um, would have said this with them and he would have sung a Hebrew blessing over uh, this wine. I'm not going to do that because I like you too much to do that to you. But it would have said something like this in English. Blessed are you, Lord our God, the King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. The Jewish disciples would have been able to recite this from memory. They've done this their whole lives. So they would have done that just like every other Passover meal uh, beforehand. But then Jesus does something that Jesus likes to do. Verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Well, that's weird. That's not what normally is said there. Then verse 19, he took bread. 
and when he had given thanks. And so now Jesus would take the unleavened bread and he would hold it up and he would sing a typical Hebrew blessing over the bread. It would go, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. Then verse 19, he broke it like he normally would. He broke the bread and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now, this wouldn't have been typical. What would have happened here is that the host of the Seder of the Passover meal would have talked about the journey from uh, Egypt for the Israelites. He would have talked about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. He would have talked about the Passover and the death of the firstborn. He would have talked about all of that. But now Jesus is saying, the thing you've been doing for 1,500 years wasn't only about that, this was about me. And the thing you've been experiencing for your whole life and you thought you recognized as deliverance from slavery in Egypt is actually deliverance from slavery for your sins. And I am the Passover lamb. Verse 20, Jesus takes a cup. After they had eaten, they would have eaten the bitter herbs. They would have eaten um, a number of different portions of parts of the meal. And then he takes the cup again and he raises it and he would have said the blessing again. But he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup would have been about the blood of the Passover lamb and Jesus says, no, 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 what you thought you knew, you don't know. It's about me. Everything you've been doing for 1,500 years was actually about me the whole time. And so when the men on the road to Emmaus make their way into their home, and they have a meal with Jesus during the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. He would have broken unleavened bread and he would have blessed it. And it was then that they would have recognized him as the Messiah, as the Passover lamb. It's interesting, he had told his followers a number of times that he would come and he would die, that he would give his life as a ransom for many. And he talked to him and talked to him and talked to him and they uh, just began to try to reconfigure what they thought he actually meant by it. Well, you don't mean die, you mean like suffer. And you don't really mean suffer, you mean like have a hard day. You don't mean like real hard times, you mean like surely you don't mean you're gonna die. To the point where Peter says, I'll never let anyone touch you. You'll, you'll never die on my watch. And Jesus is like, listen buddy, it's my watch anyway. So it, whatever, say whatever you're gonna say. But what happened for them happens for us. We have an experience, we have a moment of something and we begin to frame in our minds what this Jesus must be like. And maybe you've sat and you've been told what Jesus is like. An Old Testament scholar named Tim Mackey says that when Jesus wanted to communicate the meaning of his death to his closest followers, he did not write a book, he put on a Passover meal. There are a number of us here today Maybe you've read some books, maybe you've heard some things, maybe you're just a good old boy who was raised in the South. You don't know Jesus until you know the Passover meal, until you recognize that you are in slavery to sin and by the blood of Jesus, you've been set free. As Mallory comes up, I just wanna walk us through a few thoughts here this morning. Maybe you, like the men walking on the road to Emmaus, Maybe you spent a lot of your life really close to Jesus. 
And maybe you've got a grandma who loves the Lord and maybe you've got um, a mama who loves the Lord. Maybe you've got a dad who makes sure you're in church every time the doors are open. But the truth is you've never actually had an encounter with Jesus. And what you've built in your mind is a picture of what Jesus is like. And he's a good man and he's a good teacher and he said some really good things. But on the flip side, he said some things that I don't like and so I'm not gonna do those things. Maybe what you think about Jesus is that Jesus is a right-wing politician who votes the way you vote and says the things that you do. Maybe you think he's liberal. Maybe you think he's too liberal. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you think he's old-fashioned. Maybe you think he's good to put on your wall and to embroider on an Afghan, but he's, he's not worthy to be followed. Well, then you, like the men on the road to Emmaus, I don't know that you recognize Jesus. You see, Jesus is fully seen when our experiences are reframed by his presence. So here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. You would just close our eyes, we bow our heads. I want us to think through our lives. I want you to think back through your life. Let's think back through the ways that we have practiced life, the ways maybe you've practiced Christianity, maybe you've practiced a faith, a religion, maybe you've practiced good old Southern hospitality. I want you to think about your sufferings. I want you to think about your pain. I want you to think about how you used to have hope. We used to hope, we had hoped. And how now maybe it's turned to past tense. I want you to think about your disappointment and your discouragement. I want you to think about your victories and successes. I want you to think about the Sunday mornings that you've sat in a church service, Sunday school classrooms you've sat in, the small group rooms you've been in. I want you to think about youth camps you went to. I want you to think about the girl you married, or the guy you married, or the one that broke your heart. And I wonder, like the disciples at that last supper and like the men on the road to Emmaus, I wonder if we can look and see how all of that was meant to bring you to this moment at this time in this place with these people. Like I wonder if we could get to a place to believe that the God who created the world is strong enough and kind enough to bring us to a place to recognize Jesus. And I wonder if maybe the places you've been seeking him, he haven't worked for you. And what you need is an immediate knowing. And you can look back and say, oh, My heart did burn at that conference. My heart did burn with that Sunday morning experience. My my heart did burn when I went here and there. My heart did burn through my divorce. My heart did burn through my journey with cancer. And maybe, just maybe, by the grace of God, we would have eyes to see that it had been about Jesus all the time. So I don't know where you find yourself today. And I don't know all there is to know about Jesus. 
I don't know all there is to know about the right kind of theology and belief systems inside of our Christian faith, but here's what I know. I know Jesus. I know he rescued me and redeemed me. I know when I look back on the course of my life, I see his hand everywhere. And he has become known to me as the Passover lamb. So maybe you're here this morning and what you need to hear is that God has oriented your entire life for this moment. He has structured and moved pieces around in such a way that you would come to know him. The God who created the world has a way to live in the world. He's trying to draw us into it. So maybe you've been adjacent to Jesus for a long time. Maybe you've been running, and for some reason you're here today, and I, I'm not gonna call that a coincidence. I'm gonna call that the sovereign hand of God. What you need to hear is there is a God who loves you, who is for you, who has not given up on you, a God who has relentlessly pursued you and at every turn has been there waiting for you. A God who gave his only son to pay the penalty of sin that you would have to pay with your life and who defeated the ultimate enemy in death by raising from the dead. And what you need to do today, maybe, you, you need to give your life to that God. You need to surrender your academics and your finances and your marriage and your relationships to that God. You need to say, I, I cannot, I don't have it in me, I'm a sinner. But I believe that you are the Messiah, you are, you're the resurrected one, you're the savior who can save and heal and redeem and restore and I'm coming to you today. So maybe that's you and you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to surrender all you have to him. And I wonder if there are people in the room today who we would call ourselves a child of God. We call ourselves a Christian, a son or a daughter of God. But what's happened for us is over the course of time, we feel like we've gotten too dirty for him. We've gotten too broken for him. We've run too far from him. Listen, the Jesus of the Bible is not a prettied up, can't get his hands dirty Jesus. This is the Jesus who runs to the filth and the grime and the mess. And a Jesus who welcomes the broken home. And a Jesus who would give us the grace to look back and see he's done all of that for our good and for his glory. So Mallory's gonna play. And I'm just gonna pray over us and for us. And here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. I'm gonna invite you to come forward if you need to just spend some time coming back to the Father today. Maybe what you need to do is you need to come find someone, find an elder or a staff member up here and just say, I, I, I don't think I know Jesus. How do I, how do I know Jesus? How do I pray? How do I get into knowing and following Jesus? Well, help me. You can come do that. Maybe you need to come up here today and you need to quit running. And you need to have an experience, an encounter with Jesus this morning. All throughout the Bible, there are moments, monumental moments where an altar has been constructed on which to sacrifice and lay things down. And that's what these steps are for us today. So I'm gonna pray for us. If the Holy Spirit leads you, if you feel that conviction, that burning in your heart, I would encourage you to make the move forward. 
God, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that we are not a people who is lost, but a people who can be found. I thank you that you've given us eyes to see, to recognize you as you truly are. For many of us in the room today, we've been following a false Jesus. And we've made him um, an idol of our own making. And we've been continually disappointed. We've actually grown in anger and pride and rage with this Jesus. Would you destroy that false idea that we can't even recognize anymore? And instead, God, would you bring us face to face with the resurrected Messiah, the Passover lamb, who shifts all of our paradigms and reminds us that everything we've done, everything we've been through, everything we've walked in, has all been divinely orchestrated to bring us back to him. So give us eyes to see you in our mess. Give us eyes to see you in the redemption of our past. Those of us who have not yet given our lives to you, God, give us courage and faith today to follow you, to find you and seek you with all of our hearts. Father, as we um, worship you this morning. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to recognize you as you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen.